Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. This episode is sponsored by our Patreon supporters, Eugene Lewis, Jessica Smith, Ellie McDonald, Barbara Kreisman, Denise Begman, Jesse Parks, Monique Harris-Pixato, Caitlin McTaggart, Lindsay Cummings, Jamie Lang, Maria Carla Sanchez, Chantel Oliver, Valerie Jacobson, Ellen Gross, Jill Harrigan, Heather McKinnon, Bella, Jan Cannon, and Rochelle Walter. Katie. Hi, Olivia. Now, we have talked in the past about quite a few warrior queens mm-hmm. on this show. Oh, yeah. And I personally can never get enough. Um, <laughs> Pam Toller's Women Warriors is like, if she wrote a book just for me, mm-hmm. I love these stories. And they are having a resurgence, I think. All warriors in world history are having a resurgence. Ah. Today, we are talking about a warrior queen from the Deccan. Um, Deccan. Hmm. Deccan. Have I found a word you don't know? <laughs> Have you found a country that, that I don't know exists? <laughs> so, the Deccan Plateau okay. is the bottom bit of what is now India. Oh, this whole region, the the pointy part okay. at the bottom of India. Was it once a country? Is, it was a group of kingdoms Okay. that are often lumped together in various configurations with lots of arguing, of course, about oh, okay. what this means. So is it kind of like Celtic? It, it's, an, it's a geographical name, so it is the Deccan Plateau. Oh, the, the, okay. The, it's named after the place. I see. But also is a culturally relevant mm grouping with messy boundaries. Interesting. On the tip of India. Modern India? Yes. Hmm. Culturally very distinct. Especially 500 years ago, which is when we're going. Ooh, this is exciting. 16th century. (gasps) Oh, yay. So this is the era of the great empire building around the world and also i like to say the era of powerful women because so many women were ruling those massive empires yes wait is it the same era as noor jahan this is yes this is one generation before noor jahan in fact do they meet tell me their stories are interconnected they are oh (laughs) yes so john bb was the queen regent for Bijapur Sultanate, okay, which is in the Deccan in southern India, from 1580 to 1590, and region of Ahmednagar Sultanate from 1595 to 1600. Ah, with a notable break in the middle where she is imprisoned. That's a whole different story we're going to wow. talk about in a minute. She is the regent for two different nephews. Ooh. Of course, I'm taking those dates and I'm applying them around the world and the people she's contemporaneous with. Whoa, this is wild stuff. Yes. And in fact, what she is most famous for 
is her successful defeat of the Mughal army. What? Led by Akbar. Akbar? What? The most famous, yeah. probably, Indian emperor ever. Of course. The almost undefeated Mughal emperor who lost very few battles. Oh my. But when he came up against John Beebe, yes, he had met his match. Okay. You have my attention. I'm Olivia Mickle. And I'm Katie Nelson. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. Akbar, of course, just to give us some context. Uh-huh. Father of Jahangir, husband of yeah, yeah. Noor Jahan. So John Beebe's defeating Noor Jahan's father-in-law. Oh, man. To introduce me to John Beebe, I had as my wonderful guide, Sarah Wahid. Hello, my name is Sarah Wahid, and I am a historian of South Asia. And my work these days is focused on the Muslim warrior queens and gender and sovereignty more broadly in the southern region of India known as the Deccan. Now, Dr. Wahid found John Beebe in the approved fashion for this podcast. We, of course, are always big fans of one where the subject seems to choose you <laughs> and reaches out and grabs you from the bookshelf. And that's exactly what happened here. I mean, I've always known about her since I was a child, because the first time we hear such stories I mean, in South Asia, the way we hear about history the very first time is often, you know, on the laps of our grandmothers or like through our mothers and grandmothers and aunts. And, you know, th so there is definitely a lot of that kind of storytelling that um, I heard. Um, and then some years ago, I went to this old rare bookstore in the old city of Hyderabad. And I was looking at some books and they're not very organized. They're just all over the place and scattered and the bookshop attendant, I was trying to pull one book out. I was like, I need to see this. What is this? And it came out and he dusted it off and gave it to me. And there she was. It was a 1965 play about this warrior queen, John Beebe. Wow. This was in Urdu, but I've been reading all kinds of sources about her ever since. I have to say, I feel like a lot of these women are just waiting for their moment, and then they go, all right, <laughs> time to talk about me again. <laughs> and I choose you. I'm really interested in this story of this Muslim warrior queen, Jan Bibi, of the southern region of India known as the Deccan. She successfully defended her realm, Ahmednagar Sultanate, in 1595 from the most powerful forces of her time, Mughal imperial armies. And the Mughals were one of three powerful Muslim empires of the 16th century. She was born in 1550 and died in 1600, though the circumstances of her death are quite mysterious. And I'm working on a book, the first book, about women of the Deccan in particular, on the long ignored subject of Muslim female power in pre-modern, pre-colonial India. And John Bibi was the queen regent of Bijapur between 1588 to 1579 and Ahmednagar uh, from 1580 to 1600. 
but she barely exists in male-centric historical narratives of South Asia. She's frequently rendered as this minor figure. This region, the Deccan, is a relatively understudied one in spite of its rich history of diverse cultures, languages, peoples, religions, and kingdoms with deep roots in India's past. And what I've found is interesting is that this region historically has consistently produced more female sovereigns than any other region of India. John Phoebe was one of the most powerful and respected rulers in this entire area in a century. And she ruled over some of the most important and exciting moments of this history. These battles against the Mughal Empire are sort of the defining moment for this area, whether you become part of the Mughal Empire or not, whether you stay an independent kingdom. And especially in a time of absolute chaos on its own in her time, there are so many intrigues and attempted coups mm. and infighting and who's going to be the king it uh, it is even uh, trying to read through the history of just 20 these 20 years is baffling mm. i had to read it five or six times to even begin to understand what was going on because it was so complicated and chaotic and i can't imagine trying to live in yeah. it and yet she successfully comes back over and over and over again from all of these challenges to her power as a regent and not as a mother regent but as an aunt wow this is very different than i am reigning for my child she keeps being chosen because she is the obvious candidate and is good at this not just because it's her offspring She, was, she belonged to the 16th century Deccan, and this was a world made up of overlapping local Indic and cosmopolitan Persianate cultures between the 13th and 18th centuries, and not a world characterized chiefly by religious warfare, though of course warfare was occurring, but by really creative negotiations of Hindu-Muslim difference. I mean, Sunni, Shia, Jain, Buddhist, Sikh, and so on. There's just this really incredible, interesting ways in which people were negotiating religious difference culturally. She spent the first 15 years of her life in her native Ahmednagar. She was born in 1550. And she came of age as part of this Deccani ruling warrior elite. She knew many languages, Persian, Deccani, Arabic, Marathi, and Kannada. Her mother, Khunza Humayun, was a queen regent in her own right and was a descendant of the nomadic Turkic monarchy in northwestern Iran and Central Asia. John Bibi's father, Nizam Hussein Shah, was a Shia Muslim whose grandfather founded the Ahmadnagar Sultanate. And her paternal great-great-grandfather was a Hindu Brahmin. And her knowledge, though, of languages, her multi-religious and multi-ethnic influences of her family history were not exceptional, but typical of the Deccan. 
she grew up in Ahmednagar, but then she married into the Adil Shah dynasty of Bijapur, and her nephew uh, was none other than Muhammad Quli Qutb Shah, who was the founder of Hyderabad and Golconda. So she's related to a number of these Deccan sultanates. So I, I think there's a lot at stake in, in kind of telling this story. You know, first of all, she's this Muslim warrior queen and she's fighting the Mughal emperor Akbar, the most powerful emperor of her time and place. And he was born just seven years before she was, their contemporaries. Now, most of our sources from this time, of course, written by men. Mm -hmm. So how do I find out about her, right? Because technically we don't even know her full name. I mean, even finding out her full name has been really quite a challenge. And I have yet to go to the archives in India, as well as to um, archives in the UK to look more carefully at these Persian sources. So far, what I have are some Persian sources, right? What I've been doing to reconstruct the lives of queens and warriors of this region is interpreting diverse source material, ranging from 16th century Persian chronicles, architectural ruins and monuments and shrines, Persian chronicles and Indian paintings from the 16th through the 18th centuries, as well as 19th and 20th century English and Urdu biographies and popular culture. But if we turn to her period in particular, you know, she's been described as one of the greatest women that India produced, ranked amongst the fiercest warriors of the Deccan, best known for defending the Ahmednagar fort by organizing her troops to clear explosive mines planted by Mughal armies. Persian chronicles tell of a courageous queen with immense military and diplomatic prowess who attempted to unite the five internally factionalized Deccan sultanates against Mughal annexations. She gave audiences in transacted business and open court and evidence suggests that she had tremendous skill in organizing armed resistance, commissioning large-scale public works projects, and navigating court intrigues. We have to actually situate the fact that there were numerous battles going on during her childhood. And as a member of the Deccani warrior elite, she was certainly not sequestered in some walled-off harem of the sort found in modern European, American, and Indian imaginations. So how did she do it, right? I mean, that's the sort of question at a time and a place when uh, male sovereignty was the norm. And for historians, I think context is crucial. Now, after her husband's death in 1580, she assumes regency over her nine-year-old nephew, Ibrahim Adil Shah II, and this nephew, in turn, becomes a patron of the arts, known for his Hindu-Muslim syncretism. In the 1580s, she was surrounded by noblemen who coveted her power. John Bibi is the regent for her young nephew, and okay. everybody is trying to unseat her. And just person after person, man after man, <laughs> comes forward, attempts to remove her from power, attempts to install either their own king or themselves or their own new regent. And over and over again, they are unsuccessful and she prevails. Ha! Sounds exhausting. I can't imagine. Mm. It would not be worth it to yeah, me. Yeah, me neither. I'm not an ambitious mm -hmm. person. But she clearly was, and she was not going to be 
taken down. Okay. John Beebe deftly had one nobleman murdered and another imprisoned for his disloyalty. There is a Deccani general named Kamal Khan who is trying to seize power from John Beebe. He is extremely disrespectful toward her, and this is remarked in several accounts. He clearly believed he could treat her however he wanted. It says he snapped his fingers at the queen. (gasps) (laughs) And I think it's really interesting. I think perhaps assuming that John Beebe, a young widow, would lack friends and be left helpless. You know, I, I think that's why he began to treat her with scant respect. Children are your through line to maintain your power, right? If your child becomes the sultan, you continue to hold power. She has no children. She's young. She's a widow. And yet she is determined to rule and to maintain her power. She knew how to play this game. She would set noblemen against one another. She would play people off of each other to make sure that no one emerges as the front runner, that everything is just unstable enough that nobody has enough power to challenge her. <laughs> and she was so beloved by yeah. the common people. Wow. She's right in line with the pattern of all the other really powerful women in this early modern period. Like, yeah. Roxelana, Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. All of these the- early modern women who are using the destabilized world around them to maintain their power, and then they're much beloved by the people. Yeah. And understanding, yeah, understanding sort of the the basic psychology of what people want (laughs) from their government, (laughs) that, that if they see you as being on their side, you're going to have a lot of loyalty toward her. One of these is successful for a couple of years, and she is imprisoned in a fort. (laughs) She eventually escapes with the help of some of the people inside. Again, a lot of this history, we don't have details, but she does escape from imprisonment in a fort, which forts in India are not messing around. They are not places you escape from. I mean, Lakshmi Bai leaps from a tower because there's no other way out. These are very, very difficult. And yet somehow she manages to escape. And I, there's got to be an amazing story Mm. there that somebody needs to go find. Well, in my mind, she's already full County Monte Cristo. That's, that's what I've got going in my um, mind. No spoilers, but that might be an extremely prescient suggestion. (gasps) Okay. When she is held in this fort, when she is imprisoned and held in this fort, the historians write that the common people loved her so much that Even the women abused the jailers who were holding her. Wow. They were very unpopular for doing this. She eventually escapes from prison. She's disgusted by the attitude of the nobles of Bijapur. She returns to Ahmednagar, but then she realizes her own natal home is just as factionalized. And of course, her attempts to unify a coalition to fight the Mughal armies were 
initially very successful. And then in 1588, her original battles against the Mughal army were very successful, but soon her own people begin to turn against her. Hmm. Once defeat was imminent, as the fort was breached, she began to draw up a treaty with the Mughals. There's no way to win. And she finally agrees to discuss terms with the enemy. Hmm. So much like our episode on another warrior woman, Zenobia, mm. we have a few different options here oh. for our choose your own adventure ending. Okay, cool. Option one, Hamid Khan, who is a nobleman in the kingdom, starts spreading this rumor that John Bibi was handing over the whole kingdom, that she has completely capitulated, given up. Her own troops become so furious at what they see as a betrayal that they stab her to death. <gasps> really? It's entirely altogether possible that John Bibi was murdered, given the hostility directed against her, both by those in Bijapur as well as factions in the Ahmednagar court. She may have become a victim of her own success in maneuvering court factions. The story found its way into British accounts, James Gribble wrote in 1898 that, quote, too excited to listen to her, the crowds rushed on, cut her down, and so died John Beebe. Yet Gribble's account is itself lifted from British fiction, a historical novel by a colonial administrator, Taylor Meadows, who writes a novel called Noble Queen, A Romance of History. Wild. I think that's pretty convenient that the story that would most discredit her, she wasn't a good queen after all, so we don't have to remember her or think she was interesting or great. That's pretty convenient okay. that that's the story. Mm -hmm. That is the widely accepted history of what happened. That she was yes. stabbed by her own she troops. She was killed by her own troops for this betrayal. Okay. I'm not saying that couldn't have happened. I think that could have actually happened. But I think we need to also ask questions, given that there are these other narratives that exist, which are really fascinating. The second option comes from a historian who is actually in the area, unlike those telling the first version. I'll read you the quote from from the from the um, primary source. Um, Thus, the Ahmednagar fort was captured by the Mughals on the first day of Muharram, the month of mourning, in Hijri, 1009, the Islamic calendar, or 1600 in the Gregorian calendar, after four months and four days of siege. Chand Bibi and many of her women companions killed themselves by throwing themselves into the huge Machli Bowli well. John Bibi's beauty and radiance that outshone the dazzling sun or moon, she would have been at the mercy of the attacking army of men who would have ravished her. And so she had a large vat of acid prepared and jumped into it. Wh what? Why? Why that way? Yeah. Why? Uh, it's pretty horrifying. Why acid they, that? They refer to it as a well, um, 
but apparently vat of acid. I don't like that. I reject option two. Pretty horrifying. But it is very interesting in terms of the context. This is a, a local Ahmednagar Persian chronicler recording this, this suicide en masse. Now, a mass suicide of this kind did occur in pre-modern India, though extremely rarely. Johar, or Johar Karna, to kill oneself together with wife and children. When the Rajputs are attacked by an overwhelming force, they sometimes slaughter or burn their wives and children. So this is sort of this definition. Yet I want to stress and emphasize that the practice of collective self-immolation by women happened rarely in pre-modern India. There's a historian by the name of Vina Oldenburg who provides us with some context. She says it's a mistake to think of this act of suicide chosen by the warrior king's co-wives to save themselves from being taken captive and raped by the conquerors as, as a bid for posthumous glory. Johar was committed for the sake of the defense of territory and therefore economic interests and for the purity of the royal lineage. Queens whose husbands were slain in battle had the prerogative to opt for collective suicide. It happened rarely, Vina Oldenburg says, and in exceptionally dangerous circumstances. She compares it to the poison pill in the hollow tooth of a modern spy, a last resort. Okay, fascinating. But I've never heard of, like, how much time does it take to make a well full of acid? You know, right. How and, long have you prepared and, for this moment? Yeah. Well, she was apparently very prepared okay. should she need to end her life. In fact, in another Persian account, John Bibi, as she confronted the Mughal armies in the first battle five years earlier, is quoted as saying, Although suicide is unlawful and repugnant to both reason and holy law, I have brought with me a cup of poison and so free myself from my enemies. Nevertheless, since it is certainly possible to attain martyrdom by means of wounds, why should I attempt to avoid wounds given by the enemy? Now, there's also something else. According to one Ahmednagar chronicler, the story of her being murdered was stated by the Bijapuris, who were nowhere near Ahmednagar, and that the historians of Ahmednagar, who were actually in the region, had recorded the correct version, which was her death or suicide into a well. The account goes on to say, with reference to Farishta's statement, it was actually a companion of John the Bibi, whose name was also John, who was stabbed and murdered by this soldier. Okay. Things are getting messier. Mm -hmm. But there is one final option. The Fatenama of Nagpur, and a Fatenama is sort of a tale of victory, of conquest, right? Um, gives a different version of John Bibi's death. It says that, quote, while fighting against the Mughal forces at one stage, she realized that she had fallen out of grace of the Pir Olia, saint, abandoned fighting and accompanied by her companions, went to a secret chamber beneath the fort. She did not return afterwards. Tunnels! Tunnels! <gasps> Ooh. Now, 
<laughs> many legends in India refer to underground chambers and tunnels. So if John Bibi disappeared into the secret chambers beneath the fort, along with her female companions, two hidden underground tunnels, constructed precisely for these kinds of moments, is it possible she escaped? She had escaped a fortress before, as you pointed out, perhaps uh-huh. tunneling her way out with a spoon. Yeah. These tunnels are entirely possible. Yes. According to one historian of Maharashtra, quote, a pathetic story still exists, which shows how deep was the love John Sultana inspired. The peasants of the Western Hills refused for many years to believe that she was dead. She had escaped, they said, through an underground passage and was hiding in some deep fold of the Sayadri Mountains. This narrative persists for hundreds of years, mm-hmm. well into the 20th century. <gasps> the peasants, quote unquote, insist that John Beebe is not dead. <gasps> she escaped and she is hiding yes. in the mountains, in the caves, underground, yes. somewhere in the area. Still today. When the time came, she would again reveal herself, drive the Mughals across the Vindhyas, and bring back once more the golden years of Ahmednagar. Oh, yes. We should sort of think about that because the suggestions that peasants oral narrative tales are pathetic and cannot be considered reliable is something we should really sort of be suspicious of. I mean, I'm left with so many questions, right? Is the possible escape the reason why conflicting accounts of John Beebe's death exist in the first place? If she did escape, where would she go? (laughs) Certainly not with the nobles or the city or the people who could recognize her and turn her in. She would go exactly where they said she was. (laughs) And if she is going to hide a secret group of her innermost circle somewhere in the Western Hills, Mm -hmm. who's going to be necessary to make that happen? Locals providing you with food and help. I mean, I'm struck also by the similarities between a well and a secret chamber beneath the fort. So one wonders, could the suicide story have been made up or confused with rumors of her escape? In my opinion, this is exactly the kind of oral history that is so often sneered at as stupid and superstitious. Mm -hmm. And then so often turns out to have been true. Yeah, I love those so many times uh, those stories rejected as folk legend but they always mm. they persist for centuries because they're carrying some kind of kernel of truth in them i mean maybe not the still alive and waiting to um, well, re-emerge but could be could be as a historian you have to explore all the you can't yeah. take sides you have to explore yeah. all the different possibilities But this is one of those moments when I'm very pleased that I am not a historian (laughs) and my field requires no such pretense of impartiality. (laughs) And I Mm -hmm. am going to lean all the way into this story because 
I have no responsibility to pretend otherwise, and I declare this the absolute and unequivocal truth. Uh-huh. So there. Well, when is she coming back? When her time comes. Oh, wow. Presumably, King Arthur and John Weeby are both waiting for something. Well, what are they waiting for? Like, we're getting desperate here, guys. I know. This, it seems like maybe the time yeah. is coming. But the fact that the story exists at all should make us really wonder. You want evidence? Here's my evidence. Okay. There is an amazing book from John Beebe's court, which is a compilation of all the occult knowledge oh. of her kingdom. Which is a very mysterious document of the occult. It's an illustrated manuscript, which is very interesting and beautiful. Oh. It's uh, located and housed in, the, in a Ooh. museum in Dublin full of magic spells, all kinds of deeply important and powerful magic. <laughs> she was well-versed in all of these things, clearly. Oh, she absolutely oh, oh. knew I see. how to create a secret underground kingdom where she can wait to come back okay. for the Golden Age And she knew how India. to like cast a spell to freeze herself until she needs to return. No, she's just down there. Oh, Oh, Still. Oh. She's just Have you... <laughs> doing her thing down there. She's not yeah. frozen. No, there's... Oh. No, no, no. Oh. She's just... There's a whole underground kingdom. Oh. There's so many of these underground cities or uh, cave cities, right? Mm-hmm. Hidden cave cities yeah. that we keep finding, that archaeologists keep finding. I there think are so many of those all around the world. These okay. are well-established ways of living. Uh, the most famous one, the Cappadocia. Cappadocia, Cappadocia? yeah. Cappadocia, mm-hmm. is that what it's uh-huh. called in Turkey? Yeah. That's a whole underground city that housed 20,000 people. Yeah, okay. And it was seven kilometers long. Oh, maybe that's how she got underground. She jumped through something they called it acid, but it was really like a magical brew. Right. magic potion. Yep. And she went into another alternate... Well, no, not an alternate universe. A cave underground. It might be an alternate universe. It's an alternate underground cave and time is slippery and that's why she can come back. I don't care how it happens. I just care that it happens. So could I request that our next What's-Her-Name tour is to the Deccan Peninsula and let's go and meet John Beebe and ask her why she's not coming out yet. Well, actually, Sarah Wahid is at the moment of this airing in India ah! doing research in the Deccan. When I go to India, if I have the time and, and I get to go to these Sayadri mountains and maybe I'll take a hike along there and see and cool. maybe maybe find out if this story still circulates You'll find today. a cave and... <laughs> She's definitely going to keep an eye okay. out for the secret underground kingdom okay, of John Beebe. <laughs> But they you have to come be... back and tell us. If you just disappear, <laughs> you know, then if you just disappear over there, I am going to assume you are living your best life in the Underlands. So, so I mean, there's the movie, mm-hmm. right? Oh, I, I'm stunned that we haven't yet reached our futuristic historical Indian high fantasy stage hey, yet, yeah. because there's so much incredible stuff here. Can you imagine that? Someone make these movies. It's going to be great. Mm. Perfect. 
or video games or TV shows. Any, I this needs to be a prestige HBO mm-hmm. series, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The Underground Kingdom of John Candy. Yep. But regardless of where she is now, mm-hmm. living her best life underground, she's had an amazing variety of afterlives up here. In the iconography of John Beebe, which sort of goes viral in the 18th century, you see images of John Beebe hawking. Most of the images of her are with a falcon perched on her arm on a hunt. And she's also depicted at various points playing polo with her female companions. So she clearly is represented as being an avid sportswoman. Yet the idea of women riding horses, even those of the royal elite, seems to have been frowned upon at this time in Mughal imperial official records. In 1594, one of the only references to women in the Mughal emperor's address to his administrators, Akbar announced, quote, women should not be allowed to ride on horses unnecessarily. Only one year later, as Akbar's forces invaded Ahmednagar, John Bibi rode her horse rallying her troops to defend her territory against Mughal annexation. She is the only sovereign I have noticed who's always depicted with a falcon perched on her arm. The falcon, so prevalent in the iconography of John Bibi, and birds of prey more generally have long captured the imagination of Sufi poets. The falcon soars into the heavens, free returning to the outstretched hand of its master when summoned, such as in Rumi's poetry. And it's really fascinating because Of course, Ruby invoked the falcon or the hawk as a symbol of the high-born soul. And in Mughal paintings, the falcon connotes imperial sovereignty or royalty, as well as the pleasures of hawking and hunting, which was a favorite Mughal pastime, as it was for the Deccan Sultans. And so from the 18th century onwards, she almost always appears with the falcon perched on her arm. That's interesting because, like, a falcon underground? That's kind of sad. Well, Why does she have flight as her icon if she's I, in a cave? I, of course, as the lit person who overanalyzes every shred of story that comes my way, immediately realized that falconry is pretty perfect for someone who is meant to leave and come <gasps> back. Oh, of course. She always returns <gasps> oh, man. right on time. Oh, She's even on 18th century playing cards with her falcon. In the 18th century, they become obsessed with her again, which is really interesting as the Mughal Empire is finally breaking up. Yeah. Right? Independent states are coming back again. These small kingdoms are gaining power. Her imagery wow. is one of the hallmarks used to mark that transition. So, I mean, was her imagery being used to kind of once again mark this? Because most of India's history is not one of empires, right? I mean, this idea that there's like long stretches of empires. Actually, most of India's history is like sort of these independent kingdoms, states, locality, right? I mean, these are all kind of the the longer histories. So it's really interesting what happens between empires more sometimes than what's happening during them, right? It's interesting because in the 19th century, by the time you get to the British colonial period and you see those sources, you know, her Bakani context and mobility fades and these narratives about Muslim despotic conquest arise more prominently. In the novel that I read, one of the novels I read, John Beebe is described as a figure resembling Queen Victoria, 
that she's chased and veiled, even though she's nowhere depicted as veiled in the paintings proximate to her time and place. As we approach the 20th century, images of this mobile John Beebe outside in a natural landscape, unveiled, hawking and riding her horse, occur together with new images domesticating this warrior queen. Ah, I was hoping they were going to bob her hair and make her a flapper. <laughs> well, in the 70s, she is a very popular figure in comic books, neatly packaged for feminism wow. in the 1970s. Wow. So shades of that, right? Mm -hmm. We're not bobbing her hair, but she is definitely a feminist, cool. self-empowered woman. And, and, he, and contemporary images of her exist in Pakistan, too. And there she looks like she has stepped out of a modern bridal boutique. And even elsewhere in Pakistan, in some Pakistani comic books I've seen, she's depicted wearing a face veil, which again was never the case in these 18th century portraits. So such representations say much more about the values of the age than about John Baby herself. But finding out who she was is itself a challenge. Wow. So as is so often the case with these stories, half of the challenge is the history of the history, right? Yeah. The historiography yes. of her story, the what is the story we've told about mm -hmm. her? And that's as interesting and as important. Because now her real story, the real history, seems to be a challenge to the myths that we fall into about mm -hmm. India, about this homogenous land, about these static systems. Or about these civilizations oppression. underground? Uh, <laughs> that's not a myth. <laughs> that's reality. Oh, okay. You know, these iconic <laughs> women that we talked about, there's so many incredible women in Indian history who uh, many of them have been forgotten, but many of them, as they are rediscovered, get, as, as Sarah Wahid says, repurposed. Oh, for sure. We can't escape that. That's the reality of human culture. That's what we do. And it's stories. cool because then it just adds another layer because you see what you can know and then you see how we've told it through time and it tells you... Yep. So much more. And in 50 years, the they'll do a podcast talking about uh -huh. our weird take. Why were we so obsessed yep. with underground tunnels? Why was Olivia yeah. so obsessed? They would with say in this tunnels? era of science, Olivia is still fixated on the underground tunnels, even though she doesn't really believe she insists on believing. Or, or she really say, does believe. Isn't it hilarious that Olivia was right all along? <laughs> John Beebe came back and Katie was just so stuck in this in, rational oh, worldview that she refused to believe. Yeah, the trap of the enlightenment and evidence-based <sighs> thinking. Magic is real. <laughs> <laughs> so, however we revisit her now, it definitely seems like it's time for this story to come back mm. and for all of these stories to come back. I think it's worth wondering about sort of what it means to revisit her story, especially when we have films and books about European queens that flood our markets, but narratives about queens of the Islamic world, especially of South Asia, remain few and far between. So I, I think that this is a really important story to tell, specifically because Muslim women of medieval and early modern India were crucial to statecraft, to politics, everyday life, and yet they continue to be largely left out of history.
Did you hear that, Hollywood? And from a strictly frivolous and selfish perspective, the clothes are going to be amazing. So somebody write this movie, please. We need a Francis Marion. Yes. Francis Marion's of the world. <laughs> please. Tell the story of John Beebe's underground kingdom and prove I'm right. thanks to Sarah Wahid. You can check out our website, whatshernamepodcast.com, where we have photos, resources, links, and more. Music for this episode was provided by the Navitman Music Collective, Chris Haugen, Doug Maxwell, Bayul, Siddhartha Korsus, and Street Recordings by Sarah Wahid and Bruce Miller. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of photos each week. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. What's Her Name is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson, and this episode was edited by Olivia Mickle. <laughs>